What a joy to be together this morning on a beautiful fall morning. Reminder, as we've said before, the changing of the seasons is a sign of God's faithfulness to us and to his creation. When he flooded the earth and he made a covenant with Noah afterwards, he says, until the end, until the end of all things, there will be summer and winter, spring and fall. So as we enjoy, as we ought to, these changing seasons and the goodness of God, let's remember that this is a sign of his covenant-keeping promise to his people. So we can enjoy things not only as the world does, but with a special thankfulness in our hearts for everything that God has done. This morning we're going to look at Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 28. And I think what Paul is doing in this section is giving us the beginning, or I guess he started back in the beginning of chapter 4, but he's giving us the rules for Christian living, how we ought to live our lives in light of the grace of God that has been shown to us. And maybe some of you remember being younger and belonging to a club or a group or a gang. That word kind of has bad connotation, so we won't say that. But you know what I mean, there maybe a group of neighborhood kids would get together and you would, you would pledge your allegiance to some kind of value or some kind of something and there was, a, there was a code of conduct that you lived by, right? When we get older, maybe into high school age, there's sports teams, there's choir and band and all these things and the thing that all of these have in common is that when you are a part of a group, when you are connected to an organization, there is a standard of conduct, If you want to belong to the team, you keep up this grade point average, you conduct yourself in this way, etc., etc. If you want to be in the military, you uphold the oath that you took to conduct yourself in a certain way. This is a pretty common idea in the world that we live in. And so when we come to Ephesians 4, what we're going to see from this point on now is Paul's charter for the Christian life. If the first three chapters are true, and we know that they are, And God has saved us by his grace, brought us into his family, adopted us. Then these chapters, 4, 5, and 6, answer the question, in light of God's grace, how then should we live together? These are not only specific individual instructions. These are helps for all of us to live together in the context of a local church. And that's what we're going to see here today. That's what Ephesians 4 through 6 is for, to give us instruction on how to live the Christian life. So if you haven't done so, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll read verse 25 through the end of the chapter. We'll look at about half of this today, and next Sunday, Lord willing, we will finish chapter 4. So follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, 
by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come now to these instructions in your word, I pray that you would help us to remember that all of this instruction, all of this guidance, these commands, we can only obey them if you have done the work in our heart first. To simply read the Bible and view it as a set of rules that we must adhere to would be folly. And we thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that works in the Word and empowers us to see this not only as burdensome commands and and restrictive requirements, but Father, help us to see this as your loving instruction for your church so that we can flourish and live together in harmony and spread the gospel and strengthen the faith of those around us. These instructions are so important. Help us to hear this now with open hearts and open minds. And please come and do the work that we need you to do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I think it needs to be said as we begin this section specifically that a lot of what Paul is going to say might sound more like the book of Proverbs than one of the New Testament epistles. He, he rattles off these instructions, do this, don't do that, do this. And sometimes it can feel a little disjointed. We're used to Paul writing in this flow of thought with sentences that are about that long. <laughs> but now he gets into this instructive section where he's going to give almost bullet point things for us to adhere to. And rather than looking at that and going, oh, this, this doesn't seem connected at all. I, I don't know what's going on. We should be so thankful At least I was so thankful this week that God, in his love for us and for his people, gave us this kind of instruction that we don't have to just try to figure things out on our own. And Paul's writing to the church must include specific instructions on how to conduct themselves together. So I'm going to do the best that I can to tie things together to make it less disjointed, less clunky, And hopefully allow us to be able to see what God really wants us to see. So let's start in verse 25 as we work through this morning. As Paul begins to give this series of moral exhortations, and that's what these are. These are conduct issues. This is how to live out the Christian life. Chapters 1 through 3 dealt with the theological foundation. What God has done apart from anything that we did, which enables us now to read this And have confidence that by the power of the Spirit we can actually obey these things. And he starts these series of exhortations with an appeal to speak truthfully. And as we start this, I want to remind you of what we've seen so far in the last couple weeks in Ephesians chapter 4. That Paul has been encouraging these churches to get rid of what used to belong to their former self. The things that used to identify them, the things that used to be normal for them. He says, you got to get rid of that, and this is how you ought to live. So the instruction here to put away falsehood should be seen in connection to what he's already said, in connection to the old man. Lying 
or not speaking the truth is part of the old man. Something that maybe once was acceptable, but now that the grace of God has come, there is a different standard for living the Christian life. Now, a couple of questions I think we need to ask. When Paul talks about falsehood and lying, is this only general, uh, non-specific advice? Or do you think Paul may have something in mind, given the context of what he's writing? And I think the answer is probably some of both. Right? I think Paul has definitely specific things in mind, but this is also a general command, a general admonition to put away what is false and cling to what is true. But if you remember from last week, he had called them to leave behind the old way of living. And the way that he told them that is he said, when you heard about Christ when you did this, that's not the way that you learned Christ. He said, you didn't learn Christ in such a way that you can just carry on however you were living and just name the name of Christ. He says there must be a difference. And so the falsehood he may be referring to here, and I don't say this with any kind of strict authority. I'm just reading the text as you do. But I think one of the falsehood issues that Paul was dealing with in the church is that we know there were people coming into the church and spreading the lie that you could receive Christ and not change anything about your life. You could come into the church You could be marked as one of the community of the believers. And yet, they said, it really doesn't matter. You can still live however you want. That's what grace is about. And Paul says, no, that's a lie. You need to put away falsehood. Put away the idea that the gospel has no transformative power. It does. And so when Paul hears about these things, these people coming into the church and saying, yeah, Christianity is just, just add that next to the other things, your moral improvement, you're trying to do better, just add it to the list. No. No, Paul says that's a lie, that's something that needs to be done away with. Dishonesty or deceit is a trait of the life that we once lived in the flesh. In verses 21 and 22, you remember from a couple weeks ago, Paul contrasts the truth that is in Jesus with the deceitfulness that is in ourself. Do you remember that contrast that he uses? And so his call here for speaking the truth is to drive home his point, I think, that we need to get rid of anything that identified our former way of living. But there's another thing, another reason that I think truthfulness is so important in the Christian life, and specifically in the Christian community. It's not only that lying is a, a trait of our flesh, something that was carried over from our life before Christ, but I think Paul's admonition here is because lying is a characteristic of the father of lies, the devil. Paul's instruction is not just so that we keep our nose clean here, but he knows that lying specifically in the Bible is tied to the work and character of Satan. Listen to what Jesus said in John 8, 44. He's talking to these Pharisees, these religious leaders who have gotten things so twisted around. This is what he says, John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When we lie, 
it pleases Satan. Did you know that? Did you know that when we bend the truth, when we just embellish things a little bit so that we look better or so that the situation is improved or whatever that is, we are not walking in the truth of the gospel at that point. We are following what the scripture calls the father, the inventor, the originator of lies. This is very serious. This is not just flippant, I'll act this way, clean it up, do better. This is deadly serious for the church. And Paul knows that. So as he looks at the churches in Ephesus and he considers, I have one letter to write them. I'm writing this. What what is most important? What's the most pertinent instruction that I can give to this church? He says, you must put away falsehood and rather speak the truth to one another. And what is his reasoning? Why does he tell them to do this? Look at verse 25 again. Because we are members one of another. All of this instruction that we've seen and that we're going to see, while it does have personal application to the individual believer, it is for the good of the body, the church. Paul knows that a community of people who gather together and are trying to encourage one another and support one another, if that group of people is prone to lying prone to exaggeration, prone to not telling the truth, that's not going to be a group of people that trusts each other. It's like Scott mentioned earlier. Speaking what is true is so important for the trust that we have with one another. What if God revealed to us in his word things that ended up being false? Would we trust him? No. All of us at some point in our life have been lied to, and it stinks. And when you get lied to, does that make you trust that person more or less? Duh. Less, right? And so Paul's instruction here, his emphasis that truthfulness is so important is because truthfulness fosters trust. An environment of truth is where trust can be built Paul's exhortation here, I think, is so multifaceted. He instructs us to put away falsehood first because it aligns with our old way of living. It aligns with the work of Satan, the father of lies, and it destroys trust in the community of believers. Rather, what does he tell us to do? We are to speak the truth since we belong to one another and should have each other's best interests in mind. Now, I know that maybe this sounds basic, I know that as Christians, we, we know that lying is wrong. But I just, I want to call you to examine your dealings, examine your conduct. Because it can be very sneaky sometimes. It's not that we go around with the intention of saying what is false. But sometimes we get on a roll, we get worked up about things, and we start to say things that we don't even know if they're true. And I want to warn us against that in the church. I want to warn myself against that. Speak what is true and what accords with sound doctrine. Don't give anyone occasion to doubt your sincerity or to question the truthfulness of your words. Speak the truth to one another and put away what is false. That's Paul's instruction. Verse 26 and 27. 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is a little bit different instruction. Paul is rattling off these negative things and saying, don't do this and don't do this. He is not, however, with anger, issuing a complete prohibition against it. He's, he's telling us, I think, that there are appropriate times for the Christian to have anger. This should be seen as a command. Be angry, but in that anger, do not sin. What Paul is doing is affirming the appropriateness of anger on certain occasions. We should know that anger is not always a sin. There are appropriate times to be upset. But, hear me now, it is the limiting of our anger to the appropriate times that is the challenge. Amen? (laughs) Or maybe I'm the only one who struggles with that. Jesus himself, when he was confronted with people who were so hardened in their heart and who had rejected what God had said in his word, he had anger towards them. Most of us are doing the Bible study in Mark right now, and in Mark 3, we see this picture of Jesus interacting with these people. Listen to what it says, Mark 3, verse 1. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, this is the religious leaders, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he says then to the Pharisees, to the leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And Jesus looked at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. There are appropriate times to feel anger, to have a sense of being upset with things. For example, when God's law is broken, when the commands that he has clearly given to us are trampled or ignored, that should make us angry. If we love the word of God, if we trust it as our source of truth, then when we see people ignore it, mock it, push it down and act like it isn't real, that ought to get our dander up a little bit. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24, this is God talking to the people. He says, for they, his people, have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. They rejected his word. They trampled the instruction. And the anger of the Lord, because of that, was kindled, stoked against his people. I think another way to talk about the right kind of anger and how we are to have this in our life is to say that if something makes God angry, it ought to make us angry as well. There is, however, a massive separation between the anger of God and the anger of man. And I want to be very careful as we talk about this because that separation is huge. Okay? Because we are sinful people, because we sin, our anger is never pure. 
It is never totally righteous anger. It can't be. So don't go around being angry about everything and saying, oh, it's a righteous anger. No, it's not. You and I do not have the capacity to have truly righteous anger. Only God does. We need to be really careful. And yet, there are times in the Bible when we read about this very thing. Psalm 139. This is starting in verse 21. David says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred and I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. David says in this psalm, I hate what you hate, O God. And then he immediately asks the Lord to search him. To see if that's a right position to have. Right? He doesn't just go on in his anger and assume that he knows what is pleasing to God or what is aligned with God's will. He says, I hate the things that you hate, but, but try me. Am I right here? Or am I just flying off the handle with this? And in doing so, I think David sets us a really good example That we ought to be upset when things that God loves, things that God has instituted are trampled or ignored. There is a right way to do this and there is a wrong way. And that's why Paul issues the warning back to Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, Be angry and do not sin. There is so much instruction in the Bible against sinful anger. This is not just an unqualified, yep, go ahead and be angry. We need to qualify this. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Proverbs 29, 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. There's a, there's a real danger, and we need discernment to know how to deal with this. So when Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, to be angry, we need to qualify that. Not all anger is the same. Now, I can't tell you everything in your life that you should be worked up about. I can't say this is the time, this is the place, and here's how you have to do that. You need to figure out what that looks like in your life. But what I can do and what I ought to do as your pastor is to call you to examine yourself, examine your motives. What is it that gets you riled up? Is it the rejection of God's word? Is it really the things God loves that you love and the things that he hates that you hate? Or does it have more to do with our flesh? What we want, what we get upset about, our rights being taken away, whatever that might be. The call of scripture here, just like David says, search me, O God. Know my heart and see if there's any wickedness in me. In Ephesians 
we see why we must not entertain sinful anger. Because it gives the devil an opportunity. Now, why do you think Paul says it like this? Look at these verses again. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I think that what Paul is telling us and what he's talking about here is the danger of persistent, ongoing anger. Anger that does not get dealt with, but that lingers on. And the danger here is that the devil will exploit that kind of anger for his own purpose. Just like James says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What does it produce? It's the devil's playground. It's where he can get a hold and a grip. Now this doesn't mean that if you have times of sinful anger that you belong to the devil. But it does mean, and I think we need to know this, that unrepentant sin, sin that is not dealt with, is the thing that Satan can lock onto and twist and turn. That's his only weapon against us. Did you know that? Unrepentant sin is what Satan can use to derail our life, which is why the instruction of Scripture is to confess our sin, to let the blood of Jesus cover that so that we don't give the devil a foothold in our life. We shouldn't trifle with this. Satan is not some insignificant side note. In chapter 2, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. In chapter 6, he's going to describe Satan as this powerful being who needs to be resisted. And while we know Satan has been defeated, ultimately and finally at the cross, he is still at work in the world, trying with all of his might to bring as many people down with him as he can. Paul points out that by allowing anger to fester inside of us, to boil and to grow, that's what he means by don't let the sun go down, rising and setting of the sun marked time periods, definite time periods. So what Paul is saying is don't let this thing extend into multiple periods of time. Deal with it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. When we allow anger to remain inside of us, not only will you be the most miserable person, but we are giving up ground. We're surrendering ground in the fight for our holiness. But God in his grace has given us the tools to fight this. And it's through the understanding that God has freed us from these ways of behavior. Which again is why I think this instruction is here in the context of Paul telling us, put this stuff away. Let the things that belong to your old nature be gone. Peter O'Brien is a great commentator on Ephesians and he says, This warning not only provides a motivation for controlling anger, but it is equally applicable to any behavior that is characteristic of the old self. Right? So we shouldn't just see this about anger and say, well, we can't let our anger go on, but I can sure let this lying go on. Nope, not the case. The point I think that Paul is making here is that By continuing in the ways that we once walked, 
we diminish in some ways our growth and our pursuit of holiness and Christ-likeness. But with each step that we take towards Christ, we grow, we mature, we leave those things behind. I'm so thankful that the Bible has this kind of instruction. And it's no wonder that Paul is emphatically calling us to put away the things that belong to our old nature. Lying, sinful anger. And now we get into this next instruction here. In verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I think what we see in this verse is both the principle and the purpose of work. The principle and the purpose of work. There were undoubtedly in the churches in Ephesus people who were saved, converted to Christianity out of a life of theft, stealing. Now whether this was just blatant thievery or whether this was unfair dealings in their business or cheating on the scales or whatever that might be, there were definitely people who were coming in with a lifestyle that was marked by this kind of behavior. The principle that Paul wants to contrast with that is this, that we should do what he calls honest work and do it with your own hands. Do you see that in verse 28? Do honest work with your own hands. If, if you are engaged in a vocation that has unethical practices or if you're in a position to unjustly gain from other people's work without doing it yourself, consider what Paul says here. Consider his warnings and his instructions. Working hard with your own hands means that you are engaged in the work. (laughs) This maybe is really obvious, right? You are engaged in the work yourself. You get after it. You apply yourself with the same amount of enthusiasm as you would at a football game or a rodeo, or whatever you like more than work. Christians ought to be the most dedicated, hardworking, trustworthy employees that your boss has. Why? So that we look good? Colossians 3, Paul says that we work as unto the Lord and not to men. So when we do a good job, when we work hard with our own hands, we are honoring God and we are testifying to his goodness that God has saved us out of a life where stealing was the only option or at least the option that people took. And so when we read this instruction here to work hard, it is a testimony, I believe, to the goodness of God. That he has given us drive and motivation to want to work. And I know we don't always want to work. Work is work. It's not happy fun time. But when we work hard as unto the Lord, we honor him. I mean, what difference will it show in your life if you act like everybody else at your job and just kind of kick the ground? Yeah, this stinks, man. This job is so rotten. Like, what does that say about Jesus? What does that say about your trust in Christ and how graciously he provides for you? Work hard with your own hands. This is the principle of work. But also notice Paul includes the purpose of work. When he says, 
that you might have something to share with anyone in need. Why do you work at your job? I would say all of us, to some degree, work at our job because it provides for the needs that we have. You want to own a car, own a home, have a family, whatever you need, income. That's the way that the world is set up. Maybe you've heard this about the little boy who asked his dad, he said, why do you have a car? He goes, well, so I can go to work. And he goes, why do you have to go to work? So I can pay for the car. <laughs> it's like this circular argument sometimes when we think about work, but there's so much more. There's so much more than just meeting our immediate needs in our work. And that's what Paul is getting here. As Christians, we work, we apply ourselves to what God has given us to do so that not only can we care for our own needs and for the needs of our immediate family, but so that we can follow the instruction of Scripture to be generous as God has been generous with us. You remember from Acts chapter 2 when the early church was getting together And Luke records this in the book of Acts, that they got together and they had everything in common. And he even makes the point of noting that there was not a need in the church that went unmet. Now, were all of these people wealthy business owners who had thousands of denarii or dollars or whatever they were using at the time to spare? No. The principles of generosity in the Christian life have nothing to do with the amount Do you hear that? Generosity has nothing to do with amounts. It has to do with the impulse of our heart that says God has been so gracious with me. He's allowed me to have a vocation, a job that provides with my needs, and I want to encourage people around me. I can't tell you the number of times that our family has been so blessed by the generosity of people around. And what an encouragement. One of my favorite things as a pastor is when we get to distribute benevolent funding. And the elders get together and we hear about needs in the church and we can say, look how good God has been to us. Let's encourage someone with that same kind of generosity. So the principle of our work is not just that we provide for our own self and get our self set and padded. Now we need stability, I know that. I'm not... I'm not telling you to be foolish with your money. But you work. You have income. Whether that's retirement income or active employment or whatever that might be. We work so that we can share with those in need the things that God has given to us. Now, we're going to stop here. We'll, We'll pick up next week in verse 29 and continue in Paul's list of exhortations. But I just want to close by making an observation. This is something I was thinking about when I was looking at this whole section for the next couple of weeks and seeing all of these specific instructions that Paul gives the church. I just thought, I wonder why. I mean, was it that the church was full of people who were still stealing and lying and and cheating and talking with foul language and all this was it was that the case well for sure there was probably some of that going on but when i read this and i asked the question why does paul bring all of these things up to the church to people that have been saved by the grace of god i think that this instruction should be such a great encouragement to us you know why Because the church of Jesus Christ is not made up of perfect people. The church is not a place 
where everyone who has their act together can come to the same place and brag about their accomplishments and say, look how clean my life is. That's not what the church is for. The church is a place where people who have been so broken and so humbled by their sin come and encourage one another and receive the grace that God has for our sin. The difference between worldly guilt and feeling bad for something and genuine repentance and confession of sin is that when we confess our sin to God, He forgives us by the blood of Jesus. So don't get in your mind the idea that Grace Bible Church is a place where the good people come. There is none righteous, no, not one. Except for Jesus, who invites us to come to him with all of the icky stuff that we bring. Sin, failure, whatever it may be. And the promise of the gospel is that by the blood of Jesus, those things can be forever washed, clean. So when we read these reminders, it is a reminder of what some of us were, what all of us could be apart from the grace of God. So be encouraged that the church is not for perfect people. It is for broken people to come together, confess to one another, and strengthen each other. Remember, this is all in the context of the local church. Paul is giving these instructions so that we know how to live together. No, it's my desire for this church, that we don't act like we're something we're not. Just bring your garbage with you, and let the Lord deal with it through his people, through his word, and through his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we desire that as Christians, as children of yours, we walk in obedience to what you've commanded us. Father, please help us to lay aside these things. And maybe some of us really struggle with these things, with stretching the truth or with getting angry over things that just aren't necessary. Father, by the gentle and persistent work of your Spirit, remind us of the truth of the gospel, that you have saved us out of a life where those things mark us, and now we have a new way to walk. So please, by your Spirit, come. Apply these texts to our hearts and help us to live lives that are pleasing to you for your glory primarily, but also for the good of our church. That as we interact with one another, we would show love, the same love that you have shown us. So do this work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.